your copy of God's Word with you, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of Jude. Lord willing, we will be spending um, several weeks in this little book as we continue our series of living faithfully during trying times. We've been through the books of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and now we will conclude this series looking at the book of Jude. There's some very uh, similar parallels between Jude and 2 Peter. That'll become apparent as we go through this study. Um, We are going to add at least one more week to this study, and again, maybe it was my brain fog this week, or it's just there's too uh, too many good things in this book. Um, But we're only going to get through the first four verses today. So uh, we're going to at least add one more week to the study of Jude. Um, Now, a few things to make note of as we prepare a new book. It's always good to ask a few questions to get our context and our our minds right as we dive into a different book of the Bible. The most obvious thing you may see when you uh, look at it, there's only one chapter. Um... But don't let the lack of length convince you that this book is less important. Um, Likewise, if you go and study this book online, you may know that this was one of the more contested books in adding it to the canon, um, mostly because of its length. Uh, But um, we trust um, God's Word, we trust the Holy Spirit, uh, and it was affirmed as a book of the Bible, one of the later books affirmed, uh, but it is rightly one of the 66 books of our Bible, and it has an important message for us today. I would say really the, the, the key theme of the book of Jude is a call to arms for all Christians. Contend for the faith. Know what is true and oppose all that is false. This is a conflict or a battle that has been true since the beginning, and it is a conflict or battle that will be true until Christ returns. And again, Jude echoes much of what we've already read in 2 Peter with a little bit different of an audience. Now, the author of this book, in some ways, is not hard to discern. He names himself. The author says in the first verse, I am Jude, a brother of James and servant of Christ. Again, uh, just a minor technical thing we need to know. Uh, In Greek, the word Jude and the word Judas is the same thing. And so there's only a few Judases in the Bible, but we discern that this book was written by Jude, brother of James, which would also make him brother of Christ. We cross-reference that with Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3 to get to this conclusion. This is someone who knew Jesus well. Now, when it comes to the dating of this letter, things get a little tricky. Again, I told you this was a debated book for some time on um, why to add it, but um, there's not many references that point to uh, particular events or certain things going on in the church, and so we have a, a hard time pinpointing exactly where it takes place. Uh, but we feel with a great deal of certainty Uh, because of the similarities to what's being written in 2 Peter and because of a lack of any mention of the destruction of Jerusalem, something so catastrophic that if any of the writers had lived through it, they would have to talk about it, we believe that this is best dated alongside 2 Peter. So somewhere between 65 to 69 A.D. 
Now, some more liberal scholarship wants to push that to around 80 A.D., um, but I believe it's, it's best in that window. As Jude does not mention the destruction of Jerusalem, um, it's best to put it prior to A.D. 70. One more thing I, I want us to note before we dive in. Um, Jude's original audience, who was he writing to? Well, he was writing to um, an audience most likely of Jewish nature. The section we're not going to get to this morning, verses 5 through 16, gives examples, specific examples of false teachers, and the examples used come directly from the Old Testament. And so Jude assumes his original audience was familiar with Old Testament teaching. And so these most likely are either Jewish converts or Gentiles that are familiar with a Jewish background. They could be Samaritans, um, or they could be people who have lived around Jewish people. And so that's why when, when Jude writes, he does so more from a, a Jewish mindset. He's, he's writing to an audience that these examples would have been particularly meaningful. And I will say, too, um, this book is what we classify in the New Testament as a Catholic epistle. Um, Jude is one of the Catholic epistles. It's not written to a specific person, and it's not written to a specific church, but it's written to churches. I mean, we mean little c Catholic there, universal, and so it was written to all of the churches, um, but that doesn't lessen its importance or significance. As we mentioned, he's going to be addressing false teachers, and this is a topic that all churches faced, and all churches continue to face even to this day. And so there's a little bit of the background of this book, why I believe it's worthwhile studying and the importance of it. Um, before I go any further, let's simply read it together. Um, and I, uh, this morning, will just read through the first four verses. Would you please follow along with me? Jude chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please go, to me, go with me to our Lord in prayer as we ask His blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for strength this day, strength to proclaim your word with boldness, strength to teach your truth to your people when it is easy to hear and when it is hard to hear. Lord, I pray for our minds and for our hearts, through the power of your Spirit, would you open us and awaken us that we might receive your word today. Lord, we are a people that are challenged by false truths and false teachers we are a people that face the same problems that the churches that Jude wrote to faced. And so I pray that we would take to heart your word and we would listen to it and we would apply it to our lives that we might root out ungodly practice from among us and we might protect the sheep. 
and we might live as followers of Christ. May each one of us today declare him Master and Lord. Father, I thank you for this time and ask your blessing upon it. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, we must be aware that living a Christian life is to live a life constantly at war. We often forget this due to the relative ease with which we've been able to worship in this country. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world, however, have fought mightily for their faith, even unto death. But as my brother Jim mentioned this morning, we wage a war not only out of, outside of us, but also inside of us. We wage a war against our own sinful nature, our own sinful thoughts, our own sinful actions. We wage a war against false teachers and false teachings. And in fact, I would say that physical persecution is, is a matter that it can be difficult and challenging, but it's far more difficult to deal with theological and spiritual matters of warfare and persecution. Again, echoing the words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, he warns us, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. If you remember from that chapter in 2 Peter chapter 3, he, he says false teachers will be effective in drawing and dragging people away from the truth. Paul says something similar in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all, stand firm. Sometimes the most powerful attacks are those of theological nature. Because of this, Jude warns us. He writes his letter to join with these fellow believers in preparing them for the battle that they're currently facing and that will continue to wage around them. He wants us and, and the churches to be aware lest there are casualties. And to that end, he will give us instructions in these first 16 verses, but this morning the first four. He calls us to action. We see that in verses 1 and 2, a, a call to action. Again, it's warfare language. And then secondly, he tells us, beware those who deny Christ. Beware those who deny Christ as Master and as Lord. We find that in our second half, verses 3 and 4. And then 5 through 16, which Lord willing we'll get to in another day, he gives us specific examples of what these false teachers will look like and the tactics they will use. With that in mind and the importance of this laid out, would you please follow along with me this morning as we heed these warnings and learn how we can deal with them when they arise. We begin with a call to action. And Jude writes this letter, he, he writes it in the Greek style, so there are certain things that are taking place. He announces himself, he gives us his qualifications for writing this letter. He says, this is Jude, a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. And it would be really easy to overlook this statement as we would uh, the top line of a letter, 
um, or an email, I guess, would be more appropriate. But um, we couldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. There's some significance here that I want you to think about, namely this. If you were the brother of Jesus, wouldn't you work that into every conversation you had? Like I, I, let's be honest here. If, if I was the brother of Jesus, I wouldn't even use my name. Hi, I'm, I'm the brother of Jesus. And then I'd leave it there. I would, you wouldn't hear the word Aaron at all. Jude doesn't do that. He, he doesn't even make any inclination. We have, to, we have to do some work to get there. No, Jude identifies himself as a servant or in the Greek, a slave of Jesus and brother of James. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm his brother, but I'm, I'm, I'm Jesus' servant. He speaks enough so you know his position. He speaks enough so that you get the authority with which he's writing. But at the same time, he humbles himself immediately. And this gets to our first point. Called to action, Jude was a servant. Called to action by his Savior. Jude denies himself you denies his own identity for the sake of Jesus. And this is what it's like to follow Christ. When we're converted, our lives take on a far greater significance. We're not trying to promote ourselves. We're not trying to make much of ourselves. We're to make much of God. We've gone from death to life, and we want everyone else to know the joy and the blessing that this brings. It's through that motivation that Jude writes this letter to the churches. He writes as someone who's been called to action by his God. And who does he write to? To those who are called, beloved, in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude is one who's been called by the Savior. We just referenced that. And likewise, he writes to those who have also been called. This begs the question, what does it mean to be called? Well, he answers it. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Are you loved by God and kept for and by Jesus? Do you accept him as your Lord and Savior? Is he master of your life? That's what it means to be called by God. And it is helpful um, we don't use that word in that way. Uh, think about what this doesn't mean. You know, when we talk about calling, we talk about calling on the phone. When, when you call me or when I call you and you look at it and you're like, ah, yeah, I really don't want to deal with Aaron right now. We'll let it go to voicemail. And if it's important enough, he'll leave a voicemail. And then maybe I'll call him back if I have the time. Um, or maybe not. I'll just wait for him to call me again. Surely that, that's only me. But you know, that, that's when we think about calling. There, there's this like 100% on both parties, you have the opportunity to call and you have the opportunity to answer. There's this equal partnership in it. But when God calls, when, when God calls a sinner, when, when God draws them from death to life, it's a very different calling. Because when God calls, you answer. Uh, one commentator, I, I love how he brought comment, or, or clarity to this statement, those whom God calls are powerfully and inevitably brought to faith in Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. The call of God is extended to some and is always successful so that those who are called become believers. When the Savior calls through the preaching of His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit, believers do and will respond. 
I know it's cliche to refer to the acronym TULIP, but irresistible grace, that I there, that grace, when it is offered to you, you will take it. Because it is, it is the best thing for you. You will respond because, as Jude says, you are loved by God and kept for and by Jesus. And when Jesus wants something, he gets it. Another passage, probably the most famous passage that this is described in, it's called the golden chain of salvation, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Time doesn't allow me to really dig into this. This is a major theological point this morning. But just know when we're talking about calling, when we're talking about God calling someone, know that they respond. So when Jude speaks of those who are called here, he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to people who have responded to the call of salvation. He's speaking to people who are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That is his audience, and he shares that with them. He's got a camaraderie with them. He joins them in that calling. He, too, had been called. And so when we examine this calling, again, we, we, we realize that it's a calling by God. Jesus, John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. When Jesus calls his sheep, we go. And that's why Jude says that what it means to be called is beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We heed that call. We listen and we respond. Now, in, in, in some ways, to be fair, what we're talking about here in Jude is, is kind of two calls. There's the call to salvation, which comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Word of God. This comes when a, when a sinner is convicted of their sin. They repent, turn from their sin, and turn to Christ as their only hope of salvation. This theologically is known as the effectual call. Our confession, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10 fantastic section on effectual calling. I encourage you this afternoon with your families, go and look at that chapter. But in some ways, what Jude's talking about here is a, a, a second calling. And it's not really fair to say that. I almost scrubbed that from here because when we're called to one, we're called to both. But to be called to Christ, to, to be called to be His, to belong to Him is a call to action. It's a call to service. It's a call to follow Him, to live like Him, to love like Him, to do as He did. It, it, it's a call ultimately to war. When we come to Christ, we accept the mantle of warrior. To live as a Christian is to live in conflict with this world and the powers of this world. To live like Christ is to deny ourselves and our own fleeting pleasures for the sake of eternity. Jesus knew this well, and he preaches it very plainly in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. That Savior, that one we're called to, the one we're declaring master and Lord of our lives, they killed him. And if that's how far they were willing to go for Jesus, how do you think they're going to treat us? It only makes sense. If they hated him, they will hate us. If they hated his teaching, they will hate ours. If they hated his truth, they certainly will hate ours, which, by the way, we don't do nearly as well as Jesus did. Think about it. And so when Jude preaches to the called people, he's, he's preaching to a, a people that are called to war, called to action, called to service, sometimes called to die. So we, we read this this morning and, and we admit to ourselves, God, be merciful to us. Give us help. Give us strength. I don't know if I fully understood when I signed up that this is what I was signing up for. That's fair. Jude understands. What does he say next? He prays, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. You're going into war. You need the tools of war. You need the weapons of your Savior. And we're not all told to wield a sword. We're not all told to get our spears ready, but we're told to have mercy, to have peace, and to have love and multiply it in our lives. Why? Because what were Jesus' weapons? But mercy, peace, and love. These are the weapons of our Savior, which do seem to be a bit undermatched in the twisting, scheming ways of the devil. However, we know the way of the Lord is good and it is true. And, spoiler alert, Jesus has already won. This is one of those books. Go ahead and read to the end. It's worth it. You can even do it backwards. That's fine. It won't spoil anything. We are on the side of victory. Jesus has conquered hell and death and Satan. He has defeated all things and placed them under his authority. And we are serving under him in a battle already won. We're called to fight like Christ. We're called to live like Christ. And if it comes to it, we're called to die like Christ for the sake of the kingdom of heaven so that in the end we might win like Christ. It's not in vain, dear brothers and sisters. It is not for nothing. You were called to action, but, but no, this is not something you should fear. This is not something you should worry about. You're called to action in a battle that is already decided. And there's no better place to be But that doesn't make light of it. That, that doesn't mean that it will be without its struggles. That doesn't mean it's going to be without its pain and its hardship and its difficulty. Jude knows all too well, and we know all too well, even though we have won the war, even though Christ is victorious, there's still that pesky thing, sin, our own sin and the sin of others that we have to battle against on a daily basis. And, and one of the, 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 the worst forms of sin are it comes from those who deny Christ as Master and Lord. One of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest battles is to fight against those who deny Him as Savior. And that's what we see in our second section. Would you look there with me? And before we even read these verses, let me, let me make something very clear here that I hope is encouraging. 
the call to contend for the faith only goes out to those who are in the faith. It will only be Christians who will understand and rightly defend Christianity. This is a sad but helpful reality for those of us who seem to live or who live in a society that seems to hate Christ in all things Christian. Of course they hate Christ. God's word and his truth stands in direct opposition of how they want to live their lives. They want to live in sin, which God's word reveals as false. I don't say this to discourage you, but I say this so we're sober-minded. We should not be surprised when pagans act like pagans. That doesn't mean we don't proclaim the truth. That doesn't mean we give up. That doesn't mean we roll over. No, we fight all the more fiercely. We know our opponent. We understand our opponent. And we fight with effective weapons. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. And this was an issue in Jude's day. This this was so bad. I, I love this here. We get a commentary from Jude. Jude changes his letter. I mean, think about it. That he wrote, you know, was it 25 verses here? So he was only going to write this really short letter. And he started one direction and then changed his mind completely. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If you remember back to, to 2 Peter Peter was warning false teachers would come into the church and persuade others to follow their teaching. Jude is writing, well, false teachers have come into the church and are persuading people of their false teaching. See how they work together. Jude is saying, not get ready, not be prepared like Peter was. Jude is saying, wake up, there's enemy in the camp. Jude is wanting to write to talk about salvation, and he's wanting to encourage this church, look at what we have in Christ, look at the commonality we have in one another, look at this great salvation that we share. But something was going on in these churches, and we're not sure which theological heresy particularly um, was taking place, that he decided to point his letter against false teaching. And Jude does it with the intent, with, with the focus, with, with the thrust of that common salvation. He doesn't drop the idea of common salvation. He writes, because of it, because of who you are in Christ, because of who I am in Christ, I need to warn you in Him. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Judas saying false teachers have crept into the church. Ungodly people. They're perverting the grace of God and denying Jesus as Master and Lord. And Jesus is or, or Judas is telling them this is this was known. This has been destined from long ago. It's not something new. In fact, we'll see, Lord willing, when we get to 5 to 16, again and again and again and again and again, the people of God have had to deal with this particular issue. 
And so what were these people doing? What, what in particular were the, this group doing? Well, they were doing two things. One, they're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Now, what this phrase means is kind of weird language. They're making the case for this. Sin as much as you want, because at the end of the day, you're covered by the blood of Christ. That's what perverting the grace of God is. You sin all you want to, because ultimately, Jesus is going to clean it up. We know that this is a common theme in the New Testament. The New Testament writers, pretty much all of them, address this at some point or another. We could go to Paul in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, and, and we know in this case, because they, they, he, Jude throws in that word sensuality, these people in particular want to live in sexual sin and justify it by teaching it will be covered up eventually. Now, <laughs> can you think of a more relevant topic for the world today? Can you think of a, a, a more pointed topic for the world that we live in, even within evangelical Christian circles, than, than one to say, it's all going to be fine, it's all going to work out, my matters are my matters, my issues are my issues, it's all right, I'm forgiven by Jesus. That's the wrong mindset. Which, another pause, if you want a great, thorough teaching on that, we are currently teaching a Sunday school series going over human sexuality biblically, uh, going through the, press, the PCA's report on human sexuality on Sunday mornings at 9.30. Um, and I encourage you to check that out because it is fantastic. Um, and it is speaking to these issues of sexuality. But that's not how the grace of God works. God's grace transforms us so that we hate our sin and love our Savior. Verse 2, back in Romans 6, how can we who die to sin still live in it? It causes us to not want to sin. We're transformed more and more into His image, dying to sin and living unto God, our shorter catechism on sanctification. The message they taught, the false teachers, brought a false message in that caused pain, that caused disappointment, and caused separation from God. That's what sin does. That's what their ungodly practice was. They were bringing in that which was blatantly false, calling it true, calling it good, distorting the truth, and hurting those in the church. And that's bad enough. <laughs> that's enough to call them false teachers. But then they, they really take the cake here with this, this second one. It's, it's almost like they were worried that what they did at first wouldn't be enough to give them the false teacher title, so they're like, okay, we got this. If that didn't work, this will. Let's deny Jesus as Master and Lord, because surely that'll get you the false teacher title. <laughs> Ironically, once again, in society today, not necessarily, but theologically, absolutely. Now, that, it, it's interesting that they use these particular words, because that master here, and, and in your Bible translation, it may be translated as sovereign, depending on um, which Bible translation you have. And sovereign there, or master, in the New Testament is almost exclusively used of God the Father. 
And so Jude is actually making a very fascinating statement here, as are the false teachers. Jude is, is declaring Jesus Christ is Lord, is Master, and He is God. He is the God of the Bible. He is Yahweh. He and the Father are one. Bold statement. And that precisely is what the false teachers are denying. He's not Lord. He is not Savior. He is not God. He is not Yahweh. We don't know the precise heresy. We know that there's some early stages of Gnosticism going on here. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they were teaching in opposition. They are flat out, outright denying the core tenets of this book. They are outright denying the truth of this message. They are outright denying the gospel. They're denying Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, this is a little different than the false teachers in, in Peter's church. Peter's church, the false teachers were twisting truth to their own ways. They were telling enough of the truth, though, it was sounding believable. I hope and I pray everyone here this morning, you can hear that message is clearly false. You cannot deny Jesus Christ as Lord and call yourself a Christian. You cannot say you deny him as master and Lord and call yourself a follower of Christ. It does not work. It does not compute. We have people in the church that have snuck behind the battle lines or are waging an all-out assault on the truth of our faith. And so Jude warns us, be wary, be careful, be watchful, for these people will come, these people will sneak in, and, and they will try these assaults against you and against your people. They will try it against your children. So we're wrapping up this morning. I, I know we're out of time. Let me leave you with a few points of application as we, we consider this passage. If you are here today and you are in Christ, know that you've been called. You are a part of the spiritual war. No one is exempt. For if nothing else, we wage this war against our own flesh. Whether you fight spiritually against opposing theologies and opposing views and, and opposing people, know that you will fight this fight every day against yourself. We're called to defend the faith when we're given an opportunity to speak, but if we're honest and if I, I tell you of my own life, the most challenge, challenging battlefront is the one I see every day when I get up and look in the mirror. Now, while this is true, take heart. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. We serve a risen, victorious Savior. The battle has been won. Now, it can be hard to fight some days because we may feel that we're losing again and again and again and again and again. But know that when Christ comes, He will transform you. Remember Peter's message of hope. The day of the Lord is coming soon. He will finish the work He has begun in you. You're not fighting in vain. Remember, Jude writes to those that are called. He writes with confidence. They are believers. They are called. And secondly, be honest and realize we're fighting real enemies. There are people out there that seek to destroy the truth. They promote lies and outright deny the faith. They get into positions of power sometimes within the church and cause much harm and damage. Know this. While that is true, they too will be judged when Christ returns. They will not escape His judgment. They will not have the ultimate victory. In fact, they've already lost, and they're simply awaiting final judgment.
That being said, we need to be ready and prepared for these false truths. We need to be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us. We do so by regular participation in the means of grace. God's word, partaking of the sacraments, and being in prayer daily and corporately are the ways in which we're trained up and equipped to fight the battles that are waging on around us. And then I'll conclude with this. Be encouraged, dear Christians. You do not fight this battle alone. Our Savior is praying even now on our behalf. We have brothers and sisters all around the world that are fighting with us and for us. We win this fight. The struggle is real, but the victory is assured. All because of our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it can sometimes be hard to see the battle that is before us. It can be hard to realize that, that it is a lot more all-encompassing than we even consider at first. Jude warns us that the battlefront is right before us. It's on, before our eyes. It's before our own hearts. But we who are in Christ are called. We who are in Christ are victorious. We who submit to Him as Master and Lord. May we not fear the false teachers. May we not fear their tactics and schemes. May we know truth when we hear it and decry them as false. May we be willing to take a stand, trusting in your word, your strength, and your grace. And may we know that we do not fight alone. We fight alongside each other. We fight together as the body of Christ. I pray that you will be with us now and continue to be with us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.